But hey, as we get rolling, did you know that in, do you know what happened in 1893? You don't? How do you not remember? I'm disappointed. In 1893 was the Chicago World's Fair or the World's Columbian Exposition. And it was in Chicago that year and it hosted an astronomical number of people, especially in those pre-automobile days. The number of people that they had before there was an automobile at this World's Fair was incredible. Uh, some 21 million visited the exhibits. America, and particularly Chicago, which had risen from the Chicago fire 20 years prior, was showing off to the rest of the world, and the show was good. Among the features of the exposition was the World Parliament of Religions, in which representatives of all the world's religions met to share their best points and perhaps come up with a new world religion. Did you know that? Well, there was a guy at that time uh, in Chicago by the name of D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody had a hipster beard before there were hipsters. He's the original one. And he actually founded the school that I went to in Chicago. And uh, so you benefit even, and I benefit from this man's ministry. And uh, D.L. Moody was, he was the Billy Graham of the, of the late 1800s. He was an incredible evangelist, a simple guy who started as a shoe salesman, had no formal education. In fact, if you read some of his books today, the English in it uh, wouldn't probably pass about a third grade test. It was brutal. But he was passionate for Jesus Christ. And Moody commissioned uh, for this evangelist. And he assigned them to different preaching posts throughout the city during the World's Fair. He used churches and rented theaters, and he even rented a circus tent, which that was, oh man, you were really treading on thin ice if you think you can preach the gospel in a circus tent. Who do you think you are? But Moody would do things like this that, to, to reach his culture in those days. And uh, Moody's friends, he wanted him, they really wanted Moody to go to the World's Fair and attack this whole parliament of religions. They wanted him to get up on a soapbox and just be like, that's from the devil, that's wickedness. How? And Moody said, no, I'm not gonna do that. <coughs> Instead, he said this, I'm gonna make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. And D.L. Moody knew that preaching Jesus Christ, preaching him preeminent, first, beautiful, that's what won people to him. Excuse me, drinking water. I'm glad I'm not the only one hacking today. It makes me feel better. It'd be like amens today, everybody just coughing. But, but I, love, uh, I love Moody. Because he wasn't about uh, religion or even attacking religion or attacking other religions. He was just like, you know what? I'm not going to be known for what I'm against. I'm going to be known for who I'm for, which is Jesus Christ and preaching him preeminent. Well, this morning, uh, we're in a series where we're, we're in Christmas and we're preaching through different texts from, uh, from the letters that, that spell out the reality of who Jesus is, this one who's come at Christmas time. And today we're going to be in Colossians chapter one in uh, what is my favorite passage in all the Bible. If there's one passage that it's the only passage I could ever preach again, and I had to preach the same one every Sunday, 
it would be this one this morning. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 or 23, right in that ballpark. This is my favorite passage in all of scripture because it shows the beauty of Jesus Christ in such a powerful way. So with that, let me pray. And then we're gonna open up to Colossians chapter one together and uh, dive into this. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us, your goodness to us. And Lord, thanks most for Jesus. Father, I pray that today, even in preaching this text, uh, uh, Jesus, I pray with the same heart that Moody had, that uh, Jesus, you would be made to look beautiful and great today. That Jesus, you would be uh, so attractive to us that there's nothing we wouldn't renounce. There's nothing we wouldn't turn from. There's no tradition we wouldn't let go of or attitude we wouldn't uh, correct uh, or sin we wouldn't repent of because of your beauty and your goodness. Would you show yourself to us in a powerful way today by your spirit? I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would love to, uh, to take your word and twist it or cause us to be distracted by other things. And Jesus, ignore the truth of who you are. Show yourself to us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Colossians chapter 1 today. And I'm going to read verses 15 through 20 with you. Here, here's the passage. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Friends, this passage, you don't know the summary of this passage? It's our first core value. It's all about, help me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This passage is actually, uh, many scholars think that uh, it's, it's likely that Paul here is quoting a hymn that used to be sung in the churches in that day. That, that he's quoting a common creed of the people of of that day, the Christians of that day. It'd be like if I stood up and started quoting from a beautiful savior, you know, a quote from an old hymn, beautiful savior, Lord of all creation, right? And, and it's, it's like he's doing that. We don't know if that's true or not, but, but just the, the way that it's written in the Greek, the way that he says these things, it, it seems to be a pretty good theory. And in summary, if Paul was gonna summarize it, and I think how we can summarize it is to say, he's saying, listen, friends, it is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about him. In fact, you know, that's our first core value as a church. In other words, these are things that hopefully if you are here long enough, you'll know to be true about us. It's the things we value that Jesus is preeminent. I hope that you hear the name Jesus more times on a Sunday morning from 10 to 11 o'clock than you do maybe any other time during the week because you're hearing him preach over and over and over and sung to and sung about. 
It's all about Jesus. And we have four other core values too, right? But they all really point to the fact that it's all about Jesus. For instance, God wrote it all down. Well, what did he write down? He wrote about Jesus. Uh, we all, all, all people matter. Well, why do all people matter? Because all people bear God's image. And who bears God's image perfectly? Jesus. And we all need friends, right? That's our fourth core value. Because, and, and how does that point to Jesus? Well, Jesus as a member of the Trinity is in constant relationship with the other members of the Trinity in friendship. And if you're really gonna image Jesus, you have to have some friends. And he said, if, if you follow him, you're a believer in him, you are considered his friend. And then finally, no sacred cows. This is kind of an aspirational one where we say, you know what, we're gonna let go of anything if it means that more people would know more about Jesus Christ. So we're gonna change the songs we sing, we're gonna change the color of the carpet, we're gonna do whatever we need to do if it's in the way of people meeting and loving and experiencing Jesus, amen? amen. Yeah, that's a great spot for a loud amen. That really is, I'll clue you in. There'll be a, good, a lot of good spots today. Because it's all, friends, about Jesus. So who is Jesus? Well, think about it. His name even is very indicative of his ministry. It's the derivative of the Old Testament name, Joshua or Yeshua. I actually share a name with Jesus, which kind of blew me away when I realized that when I got into Bible college and learned Hebrew, that I share his name. Do you know what it means? It's the, it's the combination of two Hebrew words, Yahweh and Shua, Yahshua, the Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. That God say his name, the Lord saves. Jesus and Christ, the anointed one. He's the anointed one of God who saves. Jesus Christ is the savior. He was born over 2,000 years ago in obscurity in a small agricultural town of about 400 people. So I think I've said this before, but Jesus then was basically born in Clunet. Seriously. He was born in a small town of Nazareth, about 400 people at the top end. It was a very small rural agricultural town. Now, he, he wasn't created at that time. We're gonna get to this later, but it was, he was God. Jesus is eternal. He puts on flesh and he's born as a man, as a human being, 2,000 years ago. In a, he's born in the small town of Bethlehem, but he grows up. I said that wrong, didn't I? He grows up in Nazareth. Excuse me. Somebody should have, why didn't you shout me down? Correct me here. Uh, I got my tongue twisted. But Jesus, think about this, he was born to a young teenage girl. Mary was probably about 14 years old, out of wedlock, unmarried. He was adopted by a blue collar guy named Joseph who swung a hammer for a living. And Jesus' life up until the age of about 30 was lived pretty much in obscurity in this small town of Nazareth. As far as anybody can tell, he, he grew up like a normal boy, playing with his two brothers, James and Jude, who later went on to write books of the Bible. We also know he had a, at least two younger sisters as well. Uh, he went to school. He did the things that normal kids do. When he got older, the assumption is, but we're not entirely certain, that he became a carpenter like his adopted daddy Joe was a carpenter. We don't know that for sure, but that's the assumption that he became a carpenter. Swinging a hammer for a living. And uh, he probably worked that job then. And did you know too, another thing about Jesus is it's very unlikely that he had long hair like all the paintings show. 
most of the time, the reason it's, it's discovered or, or assumed that he had long hair is because he's from Nazareth. So it's assumed that he took a Nazarite vow. But that would also mean he never touched dead people, which he did. It would also mean he wouldn't have ever drank in wine. Drank in wine? Is that a word? It works for me. I haven't had any today, just so you know. But he wouldn't have done that either, right? So it's likely he had short hair and he was probably in pretty good shape because he didn't have a car to drive around. He walked everywhere he went. He didn't have power tools. He had a hammer and a chisel of some sort and he was probably in pretty good shape. Isaiah the prophet says that there was no beauty or majesty in him that would attract us to him. And so Jesus in his humanity looked like a normal guy with a lunchbox and a tool belt off to work every day. That was Jesus. That's who he became, this, this boy who's born at Christmas. That's who he grows up to become, a common everyday guy. At about the age of 30, he begins a public ministry that included preaching and teaching and healing and performing miracles. He ultimately, though, was put to death. Do you know why? Because he would not quit telling people, I am God. That's why he was crucified. He wouldn't shut up about the fact that he was God. Because he was. And he is. His resume is incredibly simple, too. Have you thought about this? He never married. He never had children. He never ran for political office. He never, hallelujah, he never oversaw a large company. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his house. He never visited a big city other than Jerusalem. He never went to college. Yet Jesus Christ today is the most extraordinary, most loved and hated, most widely considered person in all of human history. There's more books that have been written about him, more paintings painted of him, more songs sung about and to him, and more prayers prayed to him than anyone else in human history. Yet he was born in obscurity. He grew up in obscurity. But listen, friends, it's all about Jesus. In fact, we count time around his life. Did you know that? B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And even if you get to college and they, they add an E on the end to B.C. and it's B.C.E. now, before Common Era, guess where they still count time from? The birth of Jesus Christ. History literally revolves around his life. Who is he? Who is this man? And as we're speaking of Jesus, Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that there would be a lot of perspectives of Jesus, a lot of opinions and a lot of uh, false opinions and false Christs and false impressions of who he is. And Paul prophesied well, and exactly what he predicted would occur has in fact occurred. And today, uh, Jesus is co-opted by everyone under the sun towards their own perspective of him. But today we get to look at Colossians chapter one and we get to see who he is. And, and friends, this is the truth. This is why I'm passionate. This is why I love this passage because it shows the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ in such a succinct way that in my opinion, no other passage in scripture does. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Friends, do you wanna know who God is? Do you want to know? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. 
He's the image of the invisible God. If you're wondering what, what good is God like, look at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. He's fully God. He's fully equal with each member of the Trinity, with the Spirit and with the Father. And in fact, uh, most scholars, and I tend to lean this way as well, uh, would, would argue that when you get to heaven, the, there's only one person that you're going to see of the Trinity. Guess who? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. The word for image here is the Greek word icon, from which we get the English word icon. That's deep, wasn't it? I thought you'd be impressed. But it it means an imprint or a representation of the real thing. It often means the perfect representation. In Greek, it's a one-for-one exchange. He's the image, the icon of the invisible God because he is God. Paul's telling us that Jesus is God. And not just Paul tells us this, but other passages in scripture in Hebrews chapter one. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things. Guess what the father delights to do? exalt his son, to make him preeminent, to make him first. So in saying it's all about Jesus, we're not neglecting the deity or or royalty or majesty of the father. We're saying we're recognizing what the father has ordained, that Jesus would be the heir of all things, that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus is first. How many times can I say his name today? He's first. It's all about Jesus. St. Corinthians chapter four, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image, the icon of God. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse nine, he said to, the, said to him, he said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Philip is like, Jesus, are you going to show us the Father? And and Jesus is like, have you been with me so long? You still don't know who who I am, Philip? He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Look at me, he says. Listen, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. And not only if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. Guess what else? Do you want to know who you are? Do you want to know who you're meant to be? Look at Jesus Christ. Because he perfectly images God in his humanity. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, they were created and they were created in God's image. Male and female, he created them. And he, he gave them their identity as image bearers. And then he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He gave them activity to carry out in light of their identity. But Adam and Eve jacked it all up, didn't they? They ate from the tree that they should not have eaten from. They sinned and everything from there forward was thrown into chaos. And ever since then, our image has been marred. We still bear God's image, but it's more like a funhouse mirror in a lot of ways. And it's cracked and broken and we need it restored. But Jesus, on the other hand, never sinned. And so when he images God in in his humanity, his mirror is perfect. 
And if you wanna see the fullness of what it looks like to be a human being, look at Jesus Christ. And here's the other thing I would say, that the more you love Jesus and become like Jesus and, and spend time with him, a lot of times we say, you know, you ought to live a life and be like Jesus. Well, you know what that's doing? Really, when you're becoming like Jesus, you're becoming more of your true self because you're learning to image him more. You're becoming more of who Travis Zartman is, of who Bart Taylor is. You're becoming more of that person, of God's design in your life when you image him. If you wanna know who you are, look at Jesus Christ. He's the perfect image of God. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. And it goes on, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now this word causes a lot of hangups for people. Because we tend to read a modern understanding of the word back onto the text. During the time that this text was written, uh, firstborn didn't mean like you were born. It wasn't a compound word, like you were born first. I mean, it could mean that in some ways, but it was really this word protos, meaning simply first. In saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's saying, Paul is saying that he is the first of of everything, he's over all creation. It means absolutely first. This same term shows up in Revelation chapter one. When I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, Jesus said, I am the first and the last. In Revelation 1.5, that was 1.17, it says, Jesus Christ, the, faith, the, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, Psalm 89, 27, speaking of Jesus, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Romans 8, 29 tells us that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn, uh, when it's used here in the text, what it, what it means is not that he was the first one created or the first one born. It means that he is first in supremacy and in rank. First in supremacy and rank. This line causes people hang-ups because they don't understand the reference Paul's making. You know, if a Jehovah's Witness comes and knocks on your door, chances are they might turn to this verse, verse 15, and say, see, Jesus was firstborn of creation. He was born. He was created. He, this was where he began. But they never want to read the next verse, which says that he's the Lord of all creation that everything was created through him. They ignore that part but they, because they're, they're not understanding the truth of what Paul's writing. They're, they're, they're misreading it. Firstborn means first, superior in rank. Um, because a lot of times we think for a compound word, right? One first, two born, created, didn't exist. Combined with the phrase of all creation, we might wrongly assume that Paul's just lumping Jesus in with the rest of creation, but that's not true. He's saying he's the first of everything that's created. He was there when it was created. In fact, that he's the creator of all things. And he goes on to say that he is before all things. Well, uh, now firstborn in that day could mean just the firstborn in a family, right? Just like it does today. 
but that's not the way Paul's using it. And I mean, and even if he was, there's some sense where it still is true. Like for me, I'm, I'm the firstborn. It can mean the first, right? I'm the firstborn in my family. I have three younger brothers, no older siblings. I'm before them all. I'm the firstborn. I'm before them all. See, firstborn can mean the same thing it did for Paul too, that it means first. I'm before all of my siblings. Before they ever existed, I existed. I'm the firstborn of the Wyland family, but I'm not the firstborn of all the Wylands because before me was my dad, Anthony Charles Wyland, and before him was his dad, Charles Wyland, and before him was his dad, Albert Wyland, and before him was his dad, and I like this name, Carl Julius Wyland. I got his name, or his picture on the screen here. Too bad he didn't found Orange Julius. <laughs> See, before me, there were other Wylands, but, but what Paul's saying here is, no, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. I'm the firstborn of my family, but I'm not the firstborn of all the Wylands. Jesus, however, is the firstborn of all creation. He's before all of it. He's the creator of all things. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's supreme and sovereign over all creation. If you don't buy it, keep reading. Look at verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. How many things does that include? All, good job. A plus for the day, you get a star. All things were created through him and for Jesus. For, for by him, just like therefore, because in light of the fact that he's the firstborn, all things were created. John tells us in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God. He was in the beginning with God, speaking of Jesus. All things, he says, were made through him and without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. For by him, all things, Paul says, were created. Jesus is the creator. Do you know, even in, uh, there's some, uh, Old manuscripts of uh, Jewish uh, sages and uh, rabbis that actually translate uh, Genesis chapter one, where it says, you know, the, the earth was formless and without void and the spirit of the Lord hovered over the earth and that God spoke everything into existence. There's, there's actually a, a, a pretty historical version where they've, they wrote in, uh, the spirit hovered over the face of the earth and God created by the firstborn, all things were created back in Genesis chapter one. That Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the beginning, he's the origin. He's, he's, he's uh, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In heaven and on earth, guess where that, that means? Everywhere. Visible and invisible. Everything. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Does that mean physical thrones? Does that mean spiritual thrones? Yes. He's before it all. All things were created through him and for him. Which this raises a, a big question. What about evil and sin? 
What about evil and sin? Well, um, I, I think I've shared this illustration before, but let me borrow it from John Calvin, right? I like to bike in the summer. I don't bike as much as I'd like to, or and I'm, I know looking at my physique, I look like a cyclist, I can tell. You're wondering. But one of the things I do like to do is every summer for a week, I go ride my bicycle across the state of Iowa. And one of the worst things about biking is when you come across roadkill. You know, and not just any roadkill, but roadkill where, you know, some guy in his big truck filleted a raccoon about three days prior, and it's been 100 degrees every day since, and you go by, and if, listen, if you catch a bad whiff of that thing, it'll knock you off your bike. It's brutal. It's awful. Now, you ever smelled just something dead like that? Okay, now, how many of you, when, when that, you've had that experience, you turned and you looked up at the sun and you said, I can't believe how much you stink. I can't believe in all the heat that you made, that you made that thing to stink like that. I cannot believe it. How awful are you, son? You ever do that? No, well, why, now why does that thing stink? Because it's been sitting on hot asphalt. It's been heated up by the sun over time. And that radiant heat has exposed the foulness of what's there. Well, in the same way, in the same way the sun didn't, that the sun didn't create the stench, God doesn't and did not create evil. However, the sheer glory of his holiness brings a light on its awfulness and brings it to our attention. If it wasn't for the fact that God is so good, see, if it wasn't for the fact that the sun is so hot, that that thing probably wouldn't stink on the road. And if it wasn't for the fact that God was so good, I'm not sure we would even understand the true nature of evil. So we can't, he created all things. But it's his goodness that exposes wickedness and evil. He didn't didn't create that or make that. That was a part of our rebellion in him making us with free will. But it's created through him and for him. I'm not sure there's a better way to say it. All things were created for Jesus. In other words, he's the owner of all things. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And look at verse 17. He is before all things. We talked about that already. And in him, all things hold together. I want to stop here for a second. Paul's writing this letter from prison. Did you know that? Paul's writing this letter from prison, and he's writing it after his life has fallen apart in many ways. And he writes and he says, Jesus is the one who holds all things together in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of uh, him being misunderstood, of him being imprisoned, he's saying, Jesus, it's all about him. He's in prison because of Jesus, but he's, he still loves him and he declares his glory. Now there's also some truth here too. That, uh, in, in terms of Jesus literally holding all things together. And I know I've shared this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Back in the 1970s, there was a guy by the name of Lee Chestnut you know him? Me neither. He wrote a book called The Adam Speaks. And in this book, you know what I'm talking about, right? The Adam, not like Adam, A-D-A-M, but the Adam, A-T-O-M, the tiny little particle in everything from which everything's made. He writes this. He says, consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist 
when he looks in utter amazement at the pattern that he has drawn on the oxygen nucleus, just the nucleus of an oxygen molecule. For here in it are eight positively charged protons closely associated with eight uh, neutrons of no charge within the confines of this tiny nucleus, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight with no charge. Now, if you're not scientific, you don't you think, okay, that's a big deal, who cares? But he goes on, hang on here. Earlier, he writes, physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other. You, you've, you've experienced that before, right? You ever have two magnets? And you put the positive sides together, what happens? They push each other apart. Opposites attract, the, the similar ones repel. He said earlier, physicists discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other, and the entire history of the electrical phenomenon was built upon these principles. It's known as Columns' Law of Electrostatic Force. The fact that when there are like particles together, they repel each other. And so scientists begin to wonder, if you really look at this, you start to go, well, what's wrong? This tiny little nucleus, there's eight positive, eight neutral with no charge. How do they stay together? How does that happen? So they've come up with a term. They call it nuclear glue. But they have no explanation for why it exists. They just say there's some unknown ultimately sustaining force that seems to be holding everything together. And they can't explain it. Nuclear glue is one of the terms they come up with. Chestnut goes on to describe the experiments of the 20s and 30s where powerful atom smashers were used to fire protons into the nuclei of atoms. Those experiments also gave scientists an understanding of the incredibly powerful force that holds protons together within the nucleus. Again, they have no explanation, though, of what that force is or why it exists. One of the physicists who developed the Big Bang Theory of the universe, he wrote this. The fact that we live in a world in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosion without being blown to bits is... And he has no explanation. Carl Darrow, a physicist in Bell Laboratories, wrote, he says, do you grasp what this implies? It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they never should have been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet here they are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. Might I suggest to you, first, Col or first Colossians, it is, yeah, Colossians 1, where Paul writes, in him... All things hold together, that that inflexible inhibition holding all things together is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at the description of some of the things that happen at the end of time, in, in Peter and in Revelation, of, of just the destruction and in many ways the earth just kind of melting, might I suggest that maybe that's Jesus withdrawing his sustaining force on creation? Friends, it's all about Jesus. There's no other explanation. He holds, there, there's your explanation. He holds all things together. He's before all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the head of creation. And not only that, verse 18, he is the head of the church. 
the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or first. As we say it around here, Jesus is our senior pastor. When I moved into this role, I just on, a, on my own authority changed my title from senior pastor to lead pastor. Why? Because Peter says that Jesus is the chief shepherd and I wanna be reminded of that fact. I'm just the lead guy here. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. He's the chief shepherd, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, verse four. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Friends, in everything, in the church, in history, in music, in politics, everything. First in everything. Let me ask, how many people finished first in the Indy 500 this year? One. I don't, I don't know who it was because I don't care, but there was only one. <laughs> how many people finished first in the Central Division? One, and the Cubs blew it. <laughs> they tied for first, but then they lost, so they didn't come in first. How, how, many, who fin- how many people finished first? One. Who's first in everything then? Who might be first? Jesus, him alone, friends. See, Jesus comes, he puts on flesh at Christmas, and I just want to suggest to you, the eternal son, this child in the manger, is much more than many of us often tend to think at Christmas. He's much more than many of us tend to think. It's all about Jesus. He's the Lord of all creation, and he's the only one who's able to save us. See, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, Paul's saying there in verse 19 that Jesus Christ is fully God, 100% God and 100% human. He's fully God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, we're reconciled to God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else. Coming to church does not reconcile you to Jesus Christ. Going through the motions does not reconcile you to God. Knowing the right things does not reconcile you to God. Only Jesus Christ reconciles you to God. No effort of your own. Only Jesus, him alone. Because you can grow up in the church, you can be born in the church, you can serve in the church, give to the church, be baptized in the church, get married in the church, have your funeral in the church and spend eternity in hell if you never turn to Jesus Christ. He's first in everything. Will you make him first in your life? See, he made peace with God through his blood on the cross. He died the death that we deserve. And he's a perfect sacrifice. He's the only one able to save us. So this year at Christmas, as you start to think about Christmas and as we get closer and all of the fun that comes with it and the giving of gifts, don't forget the great gift that God gave in Jesus Christ. That the eternal son put on flesh, gave himself for you. If you would trust him and turn to him, He's your only hope. He's my only hope. Trust him. Amen? Let me pray. We'll sing and we'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus, for your grace that you offer to us through him. And uh, Jesus, thank you for 
for doing what you did, for putting on flesh, for coming to dwell among us. It's, it's really something uh, no one expected that no one else would dream up, but you and your great love for us became like us to make us like you. So that anybody, Jesus, who would uh, turn from their sin, repent and trust you would be saved. Lord, let us not forget either, uh, as we look upon uh, the tenderness and the humility with which you came, let us never forget the glory and majesty with which you'll come again and uh, that you deserve as fully God, first in everything. Because Jesus, it is truly all about you. Pray you'd let us leave with that today and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.